0: So there are a lot of people in racing who can lay claim to the most interesting person in racing. But I'm going to put forth as a candidate our next guest. He is a Breeders' Cup betting challenge champion. He's an owner. He is currently the elected president of NYTHA, That's the New York Thoroughbred Horseman's Association. Joe Applebaum, welcome to the show. Pete, great to be on. Happy to be here. And part of that, interesting, has to do with your background. There are, there are a lot of cross-pollination between sports and horse racing, and you're a part of that, having played football yourself, I believe, in uh, university at Yale, and then gone on to be a football coach, and you work with some pretty big names in that capacity. I'll start off by asking you to compare the process of coaching human athletes and training equine ones.
1: Uh That's a great question. Well, I was certainly attracted to the game by the competitiveness aspect that, you know, once you leave college athletics or for most of us, high school athletics, um, you just don't really get right. Where in the world uh, do you get that competition in a zero sum game? Some people say business, but I don't really think that's uh, I don't really think that's accurate because, you know, in businesses, there's a lot of winners often in the same field. And not always uh, a loser. So that's what makes horse racing so great. In fact, in most races, you have one winner and a lot of losers, which is even worse than like a football game. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of training, a lot of it's the same. And my early career in the business, I was very attracted to uh, the selection process and the uh early training which is you know very similar to the nfl combine and scouting young athletes and then figuring out how to get the best from them uh both on a physical level uh and even on a mental level even though with horses obviously the psychology is a lot different
0: my friend jake ballas of of black type thoroughbreds likes to say that you know there's only a very select few who are going to get to own a professional sports franchise but as a horse owner, you can get some of that same thrill. Do you think that's part of the appeal?
1: Oh, I, I totally do. You have to be an extremely wealthy person to own a sports franchise. You could have a hundred, few hundred million dollars, and you're unlikely to be able to afford an American sports franchise. Okay? I'm not talking about a minor league baseball team, but the NFL, NBA – Major League Baseball, it's almost impossible to buy those franchises now. So here you can participate. And you can have your franchise, you can you have your athletes, you have your coaches, you travel all over the world. And it's a great thrill for those guys who, you know, who want the
0: kind of athletic endeavor and the the camaraderie that goes with it. It feels like the barrier to entry is lower than ever. And I didn't prep you to talk about the Empire Racing Club, but that's just too good of a segue. For those who don't know, what is it and how have things been progressing?
1: Well, uh, things have been progressing just like racing is. A lot of ups and a lot of downs. <laughs> the good news is we're in a stake race today uh, with a horse trained by Mark Cassie. Um, the, the The interesting thing is we have over 150 members, and it's an effort by NITA to get people involved and to share with them the owner's experience. So you learn what it's like to be an owner. We take you to the backside. You meet Todd Pletcher. You meet Mark. You you learn what it's like to how to buy a horse, how to operate at an auction. How do you hire a trainer? What do all these crazy vet bills mean? It, it's really our effort to give owners, uh, potential owners, the experience of ownership. This is what it would be like, because in the end, we're here to promote the game and to get as many people Uh, participating. And we love the game. And it's also good for business. It's good for our members business. Our trainers need more
0: uh, clients. And this is one way to get them. My gut is that the long term positive effect may be greatest as an incubator to Demystify the process, so you get people coming in at a, a, a low buy-in level for a group like the Empire Racing Club, who may catch the bug and decide, "Hey, I want to go ahead and do this on my own." Is that sort of baked into the cake of where the, this idea came from?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and we think of it less about the buy-in level and more about the kind of uh, foreboding hurdles and obstacles one one might have to face to become an owner. Let's be honest. Our game isn't the easiest to enter, either as a handicapper, as a as a worker, or as an owner. And we're trying to break down some of those barriers and get people feeling comfortable at the track and comfortable with the things they need to do, so that they they do get comfortable to go out on their own and purchase a horse or claim a horse, and uh, and just generally to participate. Um, But this is, you know, you see it all the time. We we throw people a racing form and expect them to figure out how to read it. (laughs) Like, come on. Like, it's the same thing for an owner. Like, you know, how do you contact uh, a trainer? How do you call Gary Gullo, Gary Contessa, uh, Bruce Brown, Bruce Levine? Uh, I like them using similar first names. But, uh, (laughs) like, how do you get our trainers on the line? Isn't, it's not like clear how you do that. So we, we teach you how to do that. We teach you how to talk to the vet. We teach you how to talk to a, a bloodstock agent and to understand what to look for in the good ones and, and, you know, when to be wary. And I think that's an experience, that, you know, for the for the measly price of $500. That's an education that could, I be honest. It cost me uh, quite a
0: bit more than that. It makes me think of gamblers who talk about their early days, whether it's betting horses or playing cards, and they go back and look before they turned the corner and became winning players. I think it was Howard Lederer I once had this conversation with for a book I worked on long ago. And he basically described those early years and the losing that, that goes into it as the cost. Basically, it equates to a college education. Here's a chance to get that education without having to put so much at risk. You mentioned the need to demystify processes in this game, and you joked about handicapping, but it's really something I think the business needs to be taking a lot more seriously. What are your thoughts on making the gambling aspect of racing, which, as we know, uh, is one of the main revenue streams—really, the—you could argue the main revenue stream of the entire business? How can we make it easier for younger people to get the bug and start handicapping and betting races, Joe? Uh, well, I'm really a two minds of this. I
1: and th- th- those thoughts. Uh, on this subject kind of collide with each other. So my first thought comes from one of my partners uh, who says, you know, we're not a broad-based sport. We're a niche sport. We need to embrace that. And we need to embrace the puzzle solving of it, right? If you make it too easy in this kind of appeal to mass audience, we're not putting – the right tools, right? We won't have the resources to put those tools in the hands of people who are attracted to the puzzle-solving aspect. Now, having said that, we put up massive barriers of entry to those people who want to solve the puzzle, who do want to sink their teeth into it. I can pick up a New York Times every day, and, you know, it's not free, but just about for free, play the crossword puzzle. Mm -hmm. And... You know, you have all you have reams and reams and reams of stock data out there for people who want to play that game. And it's it's really an interesting dilemma for us. I know people would love to go back to some golden age we believe existed in the (laughs) 70s or 60s or whatever. um, And we're going to have tens of thousands of people out every day and, and millions watching on TV. But let's be honest, there's nothing wrong with being a niche sport. We do over $10 billion in handle just legally. Who knows what's done illegally? That's real money. There's a real sport out there. And we should coalesce around those who are actually interested, those who show interest, and gear our products to those people. So, you know, I, I would not be looking to dumb down the product vastly. I think you have huge delivery issues. How are we getting this data to people? How are we letting them use it, manipulate it, analyze it? What's our presentation? Yes. Uh, and this is not a slap at the racing form, but that style of running line presentation has essentially been unchanged for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So that may be great for some people, but is that really meeting the needs of our tech enabled fans who are on their Bloomberg machines, who are on all sorts of, uh, you know, big screens with all sorts of interesting uh, data presentation to them? Are we really meeting those needs? And, And that's where I would focus. I would not focus on like a dumbed down PPs so that the guy on the street could, could, pick up the game they're not doing that they're just going to play the lottery and that's fine it's fine let's go for the guys who want to use their brains
0: i love that
1: or answer women. Or, or women yeah 100 lots of women
0: we have a lot of female listeners to this show we've done we've done the survey we've got the data and yes. i think uh, this comes down to data and the presentation of it i was when you said that that's where my mind was going i agree i don't think that having some sort of black box handicapping program well that might have you know some appeal to a certain segment of the audience I don't feel like that solves the problem but I feel like if you could give tools that look like they were created not just in the 21st century but since 2018 maybe that looked like a video game or looked just had good integration to appeal to a younger audience and let them solve the puzzle using tools that were created uh, in the modern in the modern era. I think that might go a long way to to engaging them. And I think that's a great point about that. Dumbing down isn't isn't really the answer at all. Um, you mentioned the lottery, so I have to turn the, the, the conversation at least briefly to the uh, the new Pick Six in New York, the Empire Pick Six, which I've made stated opposition to based on the grounds of the way that it's priced. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's a, a thing that horse players, uh, serious horse players, want to be getting involved in, except on the mandatory payout days. However, that said, uh, I'm looking at some data now. I want to put together a, a real presentation on this rather than just being anecdotal. It does seem that people are embracing the bet. I was going to ask you, as somebody who has a stake in this in, in all kinds of ways, what's your view of the bet? Is why is it... Why can I intellectually make the case why it's not something that a serious horse player should play? And, and why are people uh, why are people betting it even from the very first day? What's going on here? Does it relate to a lottery mentality? That's like the callback to the lottery.
1: Uh, 100%. First off, I want everyone should know right away because of my, my job for NYSA, I'm on the board of the New York Racing Association. So I only hope and pray that the bet is extremely successful. Right. Okay. I want to get that right up there. Of course. Now, uh, looking at the bet and why some people play and why some people don't, I think as we all know, you know, what I would call positive EV players, guys who are looking for an edge. Okay. uh, Are not going to play the bet until the, um, until the carryover is large enough for them to justify trying to take it down or even on a mandatory payout day like Sunday, um, you know, trying to put themselves in a positive expected value situation. I think the sad fact of it, though, Pete, and I shouldn't even say sad because everyone has a different motivation. But the fact is, is that 98% of our players are not edge players, even though – you may be tricking yourself into thinking you are an edge player and the sport of it. And the 20 the 20 cent buy-in gives everyone the feeling that they can compete with the big boys. And I think people like that. I think there's a realization that the algorithmically traded people who are very EV positive uh, are not participating early in those pools. So, you know maybe it's fairer uh that you're you're competing against uh more of your peers and i think that's led a lot to the popularity um you know that it it may not make logical sense but it makes uh it it, it makes sense to the guy sitting in the on the picnic table
0: it's also very well put i do want to look at some data on it and see i worry that there could be a long-term negative effect because the thing about takeout and this is an argument you know i've had with industry people many times the old saw would be hey that guy doesn't even know what the takeout is how can so how can it matter but i argue in counter to that is that he doesn't have to know what the takeout is he feels it at the end of a day, at the end of a week, at the end of a meet when he doesn't have enough money left in his pocket compared to other gambling experiences. And so I worry that this is a chance that, that people get excited by it and it's being marketed as something that can be this life-changing score to casual players, but I worry they're going to run out of money real quick and then th- that's that. So th- that's my fear. Well, let me, let me talk to that because, I, I, look, that's a, a legitimate fear
1: if more people were betting it, let's be honest, it's doing in New York or anywhere else, quite frankly, it does less money than like our, our win play show pool Mm -hmm. for one race. Right. So I agree that overall, you know, if you had restrictive takeout on everything that, that makes it very difficult and you would see this erosion, but it's one bet. It's a small percentage of our pool. It's a good marketing tool to get people interested. You know, on Sunday, you're going to see people playing uh, both whips and exactas and daily doubles that they probably wouldn't have played, except that, you know, we're hopeful, uh, fingers crossed, that, you know, you have a big pick six pool to, to chase at that time.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I do want to give credit to Naira, in addition to, you know, this Empire bet that I'm not a big fan of, I do love these low takeout, low barrier to entry, multi-day pick fives uh, like we have this weekend. And I think that's a nice, you know, bone to throw, if you will, to the likes of me who uh, who love the idea to be able to bet on uh, connected races across the country, across days, and to do so in an economic environment that really favors the horse player.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great innovation. It doesn't get nearly the press that uh, the the pick six gets, but uh, I think one of the most interesting things about that is it focuses mostly on stakes races that you can draw people's interest, in, right? So the, like the guys I was talking about before, they're kind of interested in horse racing. They find it challenging. They may not want to spend six hours and, and, and read 10 races, but five stakes races from around the country, it makes them feel like they know who the big horses are. Like, I, I, it's, it's a really interesting concept, and I'm, uh, I'm hopeful Naira expands on that
0: in the future. I feel like it's a very healthy way to market the game, By Again, you just give people an opportunity to to stay focused and know those big horses and then bet with more confidence when they come back all the way to the Breeders' Cup and beyond. I agree completely. All right, we took this in a betting direction. That's my fault. I get too interested talking about this stuff. This is the In the Ring Pedigree podcast, however, so I wanted to ask (laughs) you your thoughts. Uh, I, I will return for one betting question later, but let's get into talking about last week's New York Bread Sale, I'm assuming you were uh, an active participant. I'm curious to know how the sale went, what the what some high points were for you. Well, first off, I don't want to – let's never leave out the connection between betting and
1: pedigree. So you, you always can make that link up. I always enjoy doing a little pedigree research in, in my wagering and seeing where I can fit that in, even though in today's uh, – hyper focus speed figure world people often forget about that stuff but so let's talk about the sale last week i sold one philly um we did okay i thought there was not unlike uh the rest of the market and and our economic world in general outside of horse racing the good horses were unbuyable i try i was trying to buy phillies which is typically what we do and you know they went i couldn't I couldn't even get close to landing one all the ones that I liked, which at least as my wife said, at least you have good taste <laughs> uh, went went for a hundred and seventy thousand or more, and you know that's not really our range. We try to play in the fifty to a hundred thousand dollar range looking for value uh in phillies we can develop into potential brood mares uh you know both at the track and and then get them into the breeding shed. Um, and when you buy at that high price point, it's it's difficult to do that. But uh, the people want what they want. They're willing to partner up to get there. And I guess in this kind of low interest rate, high stock market, although this week it's been a little uh, stomach uh, churning <laughs> uh, environment, you know, guys are going to buy the assets they want. What's been left behind a little is are the other value assets. So, hopefully, for a buyer like me, that'll work out, although at this kind of boutique sale, where there are only a few hundred horses to look at, uh, you know, it's, it's a little harder to put my
0: fingers on, for those, on, on those horses. I should have mentioned it up top in the intro, but off-the-hook racing is the breeding, racing, and sales company, uh, also also a farm, right, and, uh, and training center in Ocala? Absolutely. Uh, we have
1: we, – we participate heavily – in the New York Bread program. We have about 18 mares in New York state. Uh, we often supplement the the babies, the foals we get from them with uh, weanlings. That's pr- what we primarily buy. We, we think there's better value in the weanling market. Um, and we develop those horses. We send the most of the colts to the sales. This is a very traditional model. We tend to race the fillies Uh, except if we think they're very, very good, in which case we think we can get a lot of money to sell them or they're very, very bad, in which case we don't want to, uh, carry them to the track, which we also sell them. Uh, and you know, we look to race and then, well, we look to sell and then race and then the, the ones who have successful racing careers or we think had talent enough or the body, especially we're very focused on physical, um, we send to the breeding shed and what we hope is a self-perpetuating cycle. It's it's
0: a classic model for a reason, and I like your very pragmatic and modern spin on it as well. I want to talk to you about your background. I assume you were a fan first? Yes. I grew up, I
1: have a group of friends, there's about six of us. We, We used to hang out on the back porch of the clubhouse in the late 80s, uh, that's when that was a place to hang out, and that was where many of the top gamblers used to congregate. Now it's kind of empty, or they got a salad stand and a Ben & Jerry's <laughs> up there. Back then, you had a lot of guys with cash in their pocket. Not me. I was like, you know, 18, 19, 20, but a lot of big gamblers. Who was in that there. crew? Who can you uh,
0: who can you name that uh, was in well, that crew back there? Well, some
1: guys we may not want to name on there, but we <laughs> then moved. Uh, this is... Maybe for your audience a little better. We then kind of, as we got older, we moved out to the way back, out to the Big Red Spring, where we subsequently met uh, Paul and Duke Matisse, and of course their dad Chick, and the whole Purple Gang who hangs out back there, um, Peter Rotundo and his dad, and, and of course uh, the great Mets fan Lee Davis, and we actually know those guys now all probably 25 years just from sitting on picnic tables and in, in beach chairs next to each other by
0: by by total coincidence. Um, That's great. So That's a very Saratoga yeah. story. <laughs> and yeah, how did you make the Saratoga. leap? How did you make the leap from sitting in the backyard to, uh, what was it, circa 1999 when you bought your first horse?
1: Um, in a Sometime around there, it might have been 2001, I for, to be honest, I forget, we hit a big pick-six. Uh, Doctor, Me and about five guys hit a pick-six on Travers Day. There was a big carryover. We made about $120,000. I can still remember Dr. Kashnikow splitting horses with <laughs> the four-story days. Uh, that's when they used to end on the eighth race, no matter what. The yep. pick-six was three through eight. They didn't care what that races were, <laughs> uh, but Dr. Kashnikow the split them and and got up, and we won this huge pick six. And me and two of my buddies uh, took some of our money and went and claimed a horse, and uh, claimed one for fifty, and they bought it from us for seventy-five. Two weeks later, and we, that happened a few times in a row, like crazy beginners' luck. Don't. Um, I knew nothing, Uh, I knew absolutely nothing. We just got lucky, and it also was the time, it was the early 2000s, kind of a little more of a go-go spirit, Uh, so the markets were were climbing, and uh, one horse became two, became 16 one year, and then uh, we got an investor and started buying yearlings seriously, bought our farm in Ocala, our training center, I hooked up with my partner, Carlos Morales, my current partner, who was a trainer back in the day, yeah. trained Yankee Victor, um, uh, most famously, to win the Met Mile
0: and he moved to Ocala, and we started our business, basically. Oh, that's a great story, and it's funny. It has a lot of elements of how gamblers get started. There's a, big wins and early lucky runs seemed to yes. to be common to many stories of people who become lifers in this business. And i got a couple more for you if you have another minute or two for me. I want to start off, yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, going back and forth between what you've learned as a horseman and how you've applied that to your horse playing. Is there a particular lesson you learned from the breeding industry, whether it's about pedigree or something about the way horses are trained, that's helped you as a horse player? Yeah. If it's anything, it's matching the
1: breeding with the physical. And what I mean by that is you'll say, hey, Warfront is a turf sire, let's say you know, but not all war fronts look the same. And I think it's important and it's hard for a handicapper because most of the handicapper is done remotely now. Right. But it's important to actually look at the horses and see what do they look like? Do they look like sprinters? Do they look like uh, more distance, you know, related where their limbs are long compared to their torso? You know, how do they fit in? What's their hoof size? How are they walking? And how does that relate to the pedigree? Um, you know, we we have certain sires, let's say like a City Zip or a Freud, which they can get anything, right? Long, short, turf, dirt, whatever. Others seem uh, more pigeonholed. But it, how does that relate to the physical you're seeing in front of you? And I think as we get into this kind of digital age, where people are less at the track, they're less observational about the horse, and you know, everyone's more just looking at the numbers, it it probably circles back and opens up an inefficiency there and opens up uh, a kind of a keyhole for you that many of your competitors aren't looking at. So I, I think that's important to recognize what the pedigree is, recognize what the physical is, and are they matching, are they not matching? And, and I guess my last plug is, is don't forget about the mom,
0: yep. right? Oh, yeah. Like,
1: Everyone just talks about, and I made the mistake myself, you know, 20 seconds ago, we just talk about the sire. What, what's going on with the mom? What kind of runners has she produced? What
0: kind of runner was she? What kind of runner was her mom? Um, and, you know, people need to look at that. That's a great point. There's That information's available in a lot of different formats now. You can dig and get some of it through a, a product like Stats Race Lens. I would be remiss if I did not ask you a handicapping contest question because, of course, uh, you're not only a handicapping champion, but uh, that's something that I covered for years over at the Daily Racing Forum. How important, Joe, are contests, do you think, to uh, the future of Naira and Naira bets specifically? Um, that's a good
1: question. I'm, I, I'm not really sure. I think they're a good additive, right? I think they're a good way to get guys focused on the game and they create a competitive, um, they create a competitive landscape and build a camaraderie. I think one of the nicest things, as another one of my partners points out, is when you go to a handicapping contest, everyone's pretty nice to you you ever go to a poker tournament? Like uh, those guys are not particularly nice guys. Um, you, you know, there's not a lot of camaraderie or it's all this like subtle uh, like self-hatred expressed uh, through your sunglasses, at poker <laughs> tournaments, you know. And I find that one of the nicest things about the handicapping tournaments is like guys I've sat with at the NHC who I never met before become friends and we text each other and meet up with each other at different racing events, especially in Saratoga. Um, So I think it's a great way to build a community. I think when you see the handle numbers, let's say at the BCBC, how much of the on-site handle gets done through that, um, you know, typically upwards of 15%. Uh, Even in New York last week in Saratoga, I think they did a really healthy cut uh, of on-track handle. And so that's good because I think it's important to get guys out for that visceral experience. Having said all that, I don't think it's a game changer. It's not like it's going to boost handle 20% year over year. So I think it's more uh, along the lines of a marketing plan to, and and i'm not speaking for naira these are my personal feelings naira has a very competent team at naira bets uh super great guys super hard working so they'll figure this out but i see it as a, a way to get people together a way to build a community a way to build brand loyalty you know things that we we never really talk about in this business we're always talking about you know how do i get the uh, you know, a quarter of a point more on on my rebate. And we think that's the most important thing. And often people make non-economic decisions. Look, just participating in horse racing is probably a, a non-economic <laughs> decision. So uh,
0: I don't know. That's where I think the value is uh, from my standpoint. That all makes sense. One last one. How has being the president of Nitha affected your Horse playing, does it get in the way? Does, does it make you play more? Yes. How does that it's, work? It's made me far, mad. I just don't
1: have the time to devote to like daily horse playing. It's nice that just so people know, we not only represent the 5,000 or so owners and 500 trainers who participate at Naira Tracks, our main job is to provide support, relief, and philanthropy uh, for the few thousand workers that we have on track. So we run uh, a medical clinic, free to backstretch workers, scholarship programs for their children, uh, substance abuse programs. Uh, We work with the chaplaincy and Anna House, which takes care of their of their babies before their school age. Chaplaincy uh, does wonderful programs, be it soccer or basketball or camp for the kids. So we're really trying to make life better for those guys. So. Yeah, from a personal perspective, I've had to farm out a lot of my handicapping, bringing on guys to to make it work uh, because I just don't have the time
0: to kind of sit there and noodle on it like I once did. (laughs) It makes sense. I I called you one of the most interesting men, certainly one of the busiest. Joe Applebaum, thank you so much for your time today. Pete, I I love the compliment. I don't even have a beard, nor
1: do I drink uh, beer. So... uh, (laughs) You know, I, I don't know how interesting you can be without those two things, but uh, I love the game and I've been really fortunate to get into all aspects of it from breeding to racing to training to handicapping to now the
0: backstretch. And, uh, it's its just been, you know, it's been a wonderful experience. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, my friend. And that's going to do it for this episode of the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I want to thank Sean Tugel and Joe Applebaum. We'll thank J.K., as well for all of his various contributions on the air and behind the scenes. Most of all, I want to thank all of you for listening. This show, it's like a weekly adult education course for me. I enjoy doing it so much. One of the real high points of the week. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way.